You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. In July of 1945, at the tail end of World War II, U.S. President Harry Truman, uh, with the assent of U.K. Prime Minister Winston Churchill, uh, and joined by Chinese nationalist leader Chiang Kai-shek, they issued the Potsdam Declaration, demanding the immediate and unconditional surrender of Japanese forces. And it was a demand, not a suggestion. Should Japan refuse to comply the Allies declared. The alternative would be prompt and utter destruction. Now, the Japanese government did not surrender. And a little over a week later, the promised prompt and utter destruction came in the form of two nuclear bombs. The first dropped on Hiroshima on August 7th, and the second on Nagasaki on August 9th. About 75,000 people were killed nearly instantly, by the Hiroshima blast, followed by 50,000 at Nagasaki. And within a few weeks, as critical injuries and radiation sickness took their toll, an estimated 250,000 Japanese had been killed by the two bombs. Well over half of the deaths were civilians, including, of course, women and children. And the two cities, uh, both of which did have legitimate military value, were leveled. Now, that's a whole lot of death and destruction, but I don't think it's, it's fair to call it senseless carnage. Japan surrendered less than a week after Nagasaki, bringing to an end what was probably the single most destructive event in human history. If you accept the U.S. military's uh, predictions of losses in the anticipated invasion of Japan— uh, which President Truman said uh, was somewhere in the neighborhood of a, a million American soldiers, um, and that's not including many more British and uh, Commonwealth allies, and uh, along with 5 uh, to 10 million Japanese, the atomic bombings were, well, I guess you'd say they were a net positive in, in terms of lives. And famously, the U.S. Army still has uh, Purple Heart medals, left over from what it had ordered uh, in advance of the invasion of the Japanese home islands that, of course, never occurred. Imperial Japan uh, proclaimed its intent to fight to the last man, woman, and child, and, and to kill as many of its enemies as it could in the process. But the atomic bombs changed the calculation and thereby avoided bloodshed uh, in the grand scheme of things. At least that is the the conventional wisdom. 
Almost immediately, though, critics charged that the bombings were unnecessary. Japan was on the brink of surrender anyway, and the Soviet war declaration in August uh, 1945 would have pushed them over the edge. Or the the blockade and conventional bombings uh, would have eventually forced a surrender without an invasion. Now, according to most estimates, the, the firebombing of, of Tokyo was, was actually more destructive than the nuclear bombs. And uh, even more deaths, uh, as many as 10 million, were predicted uh, from the eventual famine uh, that would have set in after Japan and, and the areas it was occupying, uh, like parts of China and uh, Vietnam, uh, were finally cut off. But even so, the nuclear bombing of Japan is one of the most debated questions of the 20th century. And the case in favor of the bomb inevitably involves the argument that uh, short-term, concentrated, brutal, pitiless devastation can be acceptable when it results in less long-term death. Now, that's the case for the bomb in a nutshell. And it happens that Truman and Churchill and their defenders were by no means the first to make that case. In the early 19th century, influenced by the Napoleonic Wars, Prussian military theorist Karl von Clausewitz contemplated the idea of making civilian populations feel the pain of war to undermine uh, the enemy's ability to continue fighting. Clausewitz didn't uh, use the term total war, but his theories have have been described that way. Uh, Though it's worth noting that uh, there's a lot of debate over exactly what what Clausewitz was saying. But putting that aside, uh, European warfare had, for several hundred years, been more limited. Armies uh, often composed of of only uh, a small portion of society met on the battlefield, winner-take-all. It was a romantic affair between gentlemen, at least in theory. If you go back to the Hundred Years' War, for instance, you'll see that civilian populations were not spared the pain of war. Uh, But limited war was the orthodoxy in the 18th and early 19th centuries. And and, uh, that's basically the way the American Civil War started. George McClellan, operating in Virginia, and Robert E. Lee, when operating in Maryland and Pennsylvania, made serious efforts to protect private property and avoid inflicting harm on non-combatants. Now, there were some significant opponents to this line of thinking. Uh, Stonewall Jackson, for example, was arguing in 1861 that a Confederate army should go north and burn Philadelphia or Baltimore to the ground, whichever city the not-yet-christened Army of the Potomac was not defending. But Stonewall, of course was overruled. As the war went on and became more and more costly, things changed. Both sides refused to give up after suffering tactical defeats, and uh, the gloves came off, especially when Grant and his right-hand man and uh, strategic partner, William Tecumseh Sherman, became the brains behind the Union war effort. Sherman, in particular, recognized that winning a few battles wasn't going to cut it. Uh, to achieve complete victory, the North had to, had to break the South's will. And for this to happen, the civilian populations uh, supporting the armies in the field were going to have to suffer. And the more they suffered, the quicker the Southern populace would lose heart. And the quicker that happened, the quicker the war was going to end. 
Von Clausewitz famously suggested a definition of war as a continuation of politics by other means. The political goal at the heart of the Union war effort was to restore the Union. That goal was deeply important to Sherman, and he was willing to use harsh methods to achieve it. And that meant total war on a scale unimagined in 1861 and, and foreshadowing the brutal conflicts of the 20th century. Sherman biographer Robert O'Connell writes, quote, We can easily draw a direct path from Sherman's march through Georgia and the Carolinas to the super-lethal industrial wars of the 20th century, then on to holding entire populations hostage to nearly instant nuclear destruction. End quote. O'Connell, though, ultimately rejects the idea that Sherman uh, bears any sort of um, moral responsibility for the horrors uh, of 20th century warfare. O'Connell also writes, quote, Sherman was not clairvoyant. He had only the foggiest notion of where military technology was heading, end quote. But his keen mind, which uh, contemporary Charles Francis Adams said, bore the stamp of true genius, saw through the romantic notions of war. As historian Alan Axelrod put it, quote, his profound understanding of the essential brutality of war may have contributed to his mental collapse early in the Civil War, but it also drove his strategic and tactical thinking, which were unhampered by illusions of martial glory. Martial glory wasn't the point. The point was to win, to get the thing over with as quickly as possible. Because war, real war, when the stakes are as high as keeping the country you love from falling apart, isn't a romantic affair conducted between gentlemen. War, as Sherman tells us, is hell. Welcome to Portraits of Blue and Gray. This is part one of our series on William Tecumseh Sherman. I know it's been way too long since we last had an episode out, and so I want to start by thanking everybody uh, for your patience and for sticking with me. I had several listeners uh, send me emails asking if there was going to be any more uh, material coming out. So I want to assure everybody that I have no intentions uh, of stopping this show uh, just as it turns out, day job responsibilities ha- have prevented me from um, doing any recording lately and, and really slowed down the writing process. I have been able to continue researching, and so I have the research for Sherman pretty much done. So hopefully there won't be nearly as much of a delay in getting part two out. I anticipate that this will either be a three or a four-part series, and I'm really looking forward to it. Going in, I, I really didn't have a good understanding of the depth of Sherman's character. And, of course, the more you, know, you learn about somebody, the more you start to realize that complexity. So, again, thank you all for listening. If you have any questions or comments about the show, you can reach me at blueandgraypodcast at gmail.com. Please do. I enjoy uh, getting listener emails. And that'll do it for the opening. Here's William Tecumseh Sherman, Part 1. I hope you enjoy the show. When you consider William Tecumseh Sherman's historical reputation as Grant's workhorse, 
and the pictures that have come down of him with a dirty, wrinkled uniform and uncombed, tousled hair, it's a little surprising to learn that he came from a, a prominent, politically connected family. His grandfather, Roger Sherman, signed the U.S. Constitution and the Declaration of Independence as a delegate from Connecticut. And his father, Charles, a lawyer who was born in Connecticut and, and moved to Ohio, sat on the Ohio Supreme Court and was appointed as a regional revenue collector by President James Madison, which was a prestigious political appointment in the days before civil service exams. But that appointment uh, proved to be a curse for Charles, though. After a surprise federal revenue policy change left several of his deputies deeply in debt, Charles voluntarily agreed to pay the money back himself. It was an incredibly generous gesture that left Charles Sherman with a reputation as an unquestionably honest and honorable man, and it also left him financially ruined. Charles Sherman's willingness to look out for the the men working for him made an impression on his young son, born February 8th, 1820, and known as Cump. But sadly, in June of 1829, Charles surprisingly died of typhoid, leaving his widow, Mary, to care for Cump and his 10, that's right, 10, brothers and sisters. Due to the debts that he had assumed, Charles uh, didn't leave much of anything to Mary, and she had no means of providing for the kids financially. And so she reluctantly arranged for all but the youngest and the oldest to live with relatives uh, who were in a position to raise them. All except one, that is. Charles Sherman's best friend, Thomas Ewing, a wealthy Lancaster, Ohio businessman, attorney, and uh, player in national Whig politics, uh, offered to take in and raise, as he put it, the brightest of the lot, which turned out to be nine-year-old Cump. Now, losing his father was, uh, of course, an absolute tragedy, but the relationship that uh, the young boy would come to develop with Thomas Ewing had something of a silver lining. You see, Ewing was a very impressive man, both physically and professionally. He was a big, strong, self-made man who, who paid for his, his own education by working as a salt boiler in West Virginia. Uh, after graduating from law school, uh, he was a, a tremendously successful attorney, and he was also a gifted political networker. Whig icons like Henry Clay and Daniel Webster were both regular visitors at the Ewing Homes in Lancaster, Ohio, and Washington City, uh, where Thomas Ewing served as senator from Ohio and secretary of the interior. Thomas Ewing wasn't the only political player in William Tecumseh Sherman's life. His brother John, of Sherman Antitrust Act fame, uh, would be elected to the Senate as a Republican at age 38 and serve as Secretary of the Treasury and briefly as Secretary of State. But that was a long way off. John was Kump's younger brother, after all. So as a condition of taking the young boy in, Thomas Ewing's wife, Maria, a devout Catholic, insisted that the boy be baptized as a Roman Catholic, to which uh, Kump's mother, Mary Sherman, gave her okay. And the baptism raises a bit of trivia 
about which historians disagree. The story is that uh, the first name of the boy who was adopted by the Ewings was Tecumseh, after the Shawnee chief who fought alongside the British in the War of 1812. But, the story goes, the local parish priest would not baptize the boy with a uh, unchristian first name. And so William was added to the front to satisfy the priest. Now, some of the historians I read uh, when researching this um, episode say that that, that story is, is apocryphal. And some say it's, it's legit. Uh, but regardless, our subject was definitely baptized William Tecumseh Sherman. Uh, there's no dispute about that. And to his close friends and family, he went by Kump. Uh, despite foster mom Maria's best efforts, though, the, the Catholicism did not stick. Sherman was more or less agnostic throughout his adult life. As awful as it was for nine-year-old Kump to lose his father, growing up with the Ewings was not a bad safety net to fall into. The family was wealthy, and Kump was well taken care of. And Thomas Ewing took his promise to raise Kump seriously. Uh, he acted as an excellent mentor, uh, made sure the boy got a top-notch education, and uh, showed uh, genuine affection, uh, eventually taking great pride in having raised the future war hero. Uh, when Ewing had to travel to Washington, he would leave written instructions for Maria. Uh, as an example, quote, and there is Kumpy, too. He is disposed to be bashful, not quite at home. Endeavor to inspire him with confidence and make him feel one of the family. End quote. Uh, Ewing later recalled with obvious pride, quote, I never knew so young a boy who would do an errand so correctly and promptly as he did. He was transparently honest, faithful and reliable, studious and correct in his habits. End quote. As a boy, Sherman earned a reputation for... Two uh, distinguishing traits, both of which would stay with him uh, for much of his life. First, he had bright red hair. Fire engine red, we'd call it now. Um, the black and white pictures, one assumes, don't, don't do it justice. And second, he was an uh, egregious talker. Nearly everyone he encountered, including Grant and Lincoln, noted that Sherman just never shut up. He, he was exceptionally intelligent, so he often had... Interesting things to say, but he also seemed to have had a problem with recognizing what was better left unsaid. Senator Ewing decided early on that Kump was an ideal candidate for West Point. As we noted, Ewing was uh, a plus networker, and he would have known that West Point was one of, if not the, best networking opportunities available to young American men in the 19th century. And probably still is for that matter. As a senator, he had uh, little difficulty securing the appointment for 16-year-old Kump in 1836. And it was a good fit. From that point forward, whenever Sherman was in a military setting, uh, he was in his element. And whenever he wasn't, he tended to be restless. Sherman's roommate at West Point was uh, Virginian George Thomas, the Union general later known as the Rock of Chickamauga. And the school's enrollment during Sherman's tenure is a who's who of Civil War generals. Braxton Bragg, Henry Halleck, Jubal Early, Joseph Hooker, P.G.T. Beauregard, Irvin McDowell, William Hardy, Don Carlos Buell, 
Earl Van Dorn, James Longstreet, and William Rosecrans all attended the school with Sherman. Rosecrans recalled Sherman being, quote, one of the brightest and most popular fellows, a bright-eyed, red-headed fellow who was always prepared for a lark of any kind, end quote. And there was also future good friend Ulysses Grant, three years behind Sherman. Uh, like pretty much everyone else, though, Sherman didn't remember much of anything about Grant at West Point, other than that, that he was great with a horse, which seems to have been the most distinguishing feature uh, about Grant during his time at the school. Academically, Sherman uh, was an ace, but he wasn't much for following protocol. He earned a reputation among his classmates as a skilled smuggler of forbidden snacks into barracks. From his own memoirs, quote, At the academy, I was not considered a good soldier, for at no time was I selected for any office, but remained a private throughout the whole four years. Then, as now, neatness in dress and form, with a strict conformity to the rules, were the qualifications required for office. And I suppose I was found not to excel in any of these. In studies, I always held a respectable reputation with the professors and generally ranked uh, among the best, especially in drawing, chemistry, mathematics, and natural philosophy. My average demerits per annum were about 150, which reduced my final class standing from four to six, end quote. 150 demerits per year. That was basically uh, just few enough to keep from getting bounced out. You'll recall Lee uh, famously graduated with no demerits. Of course, the demerits didn't phase Sherman. Uh, as graduation drew closer, uh, he wrote to Foster's sister and scandalously future wife, Ellen Ewing, quote, The nearer we come to graduation day, the higher opinion I conceive of the duties and life of an officer in the U.S. Army, and the more confirmed in the wish of spending my life in the service of my country. End quote. Uh, so graduation came in 1840, and with it, the beginning of a military career that would span more than 40 years. He finished sixth out of the 45 in the graduating class, which, uh, incidentally, was about half of the cadets who had started four years earlier. West Point was not shy about sending home uh, cadets who were not suited to military life or uh, academically capable. Sherman was hoping for the prestigious engineering corps, but he had to settle for artillery, uh, not itself a bad assignment. His first post was in Fort Pierce in eastern Florida, dealing with the late stages of the Seminole War. The war had begun in 1835 when a Seminole attack killed 107 soldiers and it went on for more than seven years. It was defined by guerrilla warfare, parties of U.S. soldiers patrolling the swamps in search of Seminoles who had left the reservation, and Seminole War parties ambushing the patrols. The Seminole War was, above all, frustrating to the Army. Most of the patrols didn't find any armed bands of Indians, and when they did find them, it was frequently on unfavorable terms. And the frustration led to unquestionably harsh tactics. When Colonel William Worth took over command in 1841, he began implementing a strategy designed to break the Seminole will and their ability to continue resisting. Rather than sending more and more men into the swamps looking for Seminole warriors, 
Worth employed uh, smaller teams, composed of the very best soldiers. The streamlined teams could stay out in the field longer and required less logistical support. Instead of seeking out war parties to fight, their job was to pull the rug out from underneath the guerrillas by eliminating their means of support. They burned the villages outside of the reservations that supplied the warriors and destroyed any food that might be used to sustain the fighting men in the field. And instead of playing an endless game of hide-and-go-seek in swamps that the Seminoles knew uh, much better than the soldiers chasing them, uh, Worth's men instead waited for the war bands to come back to the villages to resupply and then either arrested them or just killed them. Young Lieutenant Sherman, uh, somewhat approvingly, described Colonel Worth's approach as a war of extermination, the most certain and economical method. The methods were, were callous, or even ruthless. After all, starving out the fighting men in the field, uh, by necessity, deprives the women and children of food, too, like the British blockade in World War I. But they were also unquestionably effective bringing the Seminole guerrilla campaign to an end and thereby paving the way for Florida's admission into the Union three years later. Sherman rarely got out into the field while in Florida, spending most of the time uh, on base doing logistical work. But the effectiveness uh, of undercutting the enemy's means of support undeniably made an impression. He, He would later employ a similar strategy against both the Confederates and the Sioux. With the Seminoles effectively subdued, Sherman was transferred to Fort Moultrie in Charleston, South Carolina, in June of 1842, uh, shortly after receiving a promotion to first lieutenant. He split his time between uh, hobnobbing with the Charleston aristocracy, uh, Sherman generally liked Southerners, and taking long, informal scouting trips into the countryside of South Carolina, Georgia, and Alabama. Sherman had a knack for committing to memory Uh, any topography he ever encountered, uh, even if only once, and only briefly. There are people, uh, you probably know someone like this, who can drive around a town one time, and then 15 or 20 years later, still remember exactly how the town is laid out and how to get wherever they need to go. And that's Sherman, except that instead of memorizing the street layout of a town, he's learning the lay of the land all throughout the Deep South. And as you could probably guess, this uh, encyclopedic knowledge of the terrain in Georgia and South Carolina uh, would come in pretty handy down the road. Charleston was a hotbed of secession prior to the Civil War, and notwithstanding the many good relationships he developed with the locals, Sherman noted that talk of nullification and secession was never far from the lips of the Charleston upper class. Even 20 years before Fort Sumter, then under construction, would set off the Civil War. In his post-war memoirs, Sherman recalled uh, of his time in Charleston, quote, Charleston was then, meaning in 1842, a proud, aristocratic city and assumed a leadership in the public opinion of the South far out of proportion to her population, wealth, or commerce. On more than one occasion previously, the inhabitants had almost inaugurated civil war by their assertion and professed belief that each state had, in their original compact with the government, reserved to itself the right to withdraw from the Union at its own option, whenever the people supposed 
that they had sufficient cause. We used to discuss these things at our own mess tables, vehemently and sometimes quite angrily, but I am sure that I never feared it would go further than it had already gone in the winter of 1832-33, when the attempt at nullification was promptly suppressed by President Jackson's famous declaration, the Union must and shall be preserved, and by the judicious management of General Scott. End quote. Uh, there at the end of that quote, Sherman was himself quoting um, President Andrew Jackson and then made a reference to General Winfield Scott, who we, we will discuss later in this episode. Uh, Southerners viewed Massachusetts and Boston specifically as the heart of Yankeedom. That's where all the abolitionists lived uh, who, who caused all the problems. In our series on the CSS Alabama, we talked about how the Commerce Raiders' southern officers took the greatest pleasure in capturing and burning uh, ships sailing out of Boston. Well, the mirror image of Boston, in the eyes of northerners, was Charleston. To a diehard Unionist, but a political moderate like William Tecumseh Sherman, the Charleston secessionist fire eaters were a bad influence on the rest of the South. And that's a big part of why in 1864 and 1865, when Sherman was in the position to dole out retribution, he made an example out of South Carolina. Though for strategic reasons, the state capital of Columbia had to serve as a stand-in for Charleston. Three years into his military service, in the summer of 1843, Sherman received an extended leave allowing him to visit his hometown of Lancaster, Ohio. As a brief aside, you'll have to forgive me if at any point in uh, this episode I mispronounce Lancaster, Ohio as Lancaster, which is the way the city of the same name, at least in spelling anyway, uh, located in Pennsylvania, is, is pronounced uh, by the locals there. Uh, anyway, throughout his time at West Point and as a young lieutenant, Sherman had been regularly corresponding with Thomas Ewing's daughter, Ellen, who was, technically speaking, Kump's foster sister. Ellen was four years younger, but as kids, the pair had developed a close friendship, which they continued through their letters. She was smart, charming, and talented, and therefore made for a good pen pal for a lonely cadet and young soldier. And when he returned to Lancaster that summer, Kump realized that he now loved the 19-year-old Ellen. Not long after, he asked Thomas Ewing for his daughter's hand. There were, however, some complications. First, Ewing thought of Sherman as a son, and of course, Ellen was in fact his daughter. But uh, there was no blood relation, so while maybe awkward a little bit, uh, that could be managed. Certainly, the seven prior years Sherman had spent away from Lancaster no doubt made the situation uh, a little more manageable. Also, and this one was a problem for Ellen, she had inherited her mother's enthusiastic Catholicism, and Sherman was uh, not devout, to say the least. But he had been baptized, now, you'll remember that Maria Ewing saw to that, and he knew how to go through the motions and wouldn't interfere with um, her raising the eventual children within the church. And another complication, she didn't want to leave home, but Sherman's military career would, of course, require travel. 
And she also was accustomed to a higher standard of living than a first lieutenant's salary was going to support. Sherman was running into the same frustration voiced by Robert E. Lee and so many other young officers in the 1840s and 1850s. Uh, The army during peacetime didn't allow for advancement. The Ewings suggested that Sherman resign and work for Thomas Ewing. Uh, But uh, Kump was not on board with that. So what they decided was that Kump and Ellen would get married, but not now. And they settled into an extended six-year engagement. It would prove to be uh, worth the wait for both of them, uh, especially Sherman. Ellen was a fierce advocate on behalf of her husband uh, when he was at his lowest points, and uh, it kept him grounded when he was uh, on top of the world. Sherman's prospects for promotion seemed to improve when tensions flared up with Mexico in the run-up to the Mexican-American War. He tried to get a transfer to Texas, but was instead stuck with uh, recruiter duty in Pittsburgh, much to his disappointment. Repeatedly, Sherman uh, put in for duty in Texas. He even took a group of recruits to Cincinnati in hopes of being able to escort them to the border, for which he was reprimanded. Uh, But instead of Texas or Mexico, he was sent to California. To get there, he sailed aboard the USS Lexington on a 198-day voyage all the way around South America. Uh, By the time the ship, which also carried Henry Halleck, uh, arrived in California, the, the Mexican War was all but over, and Sherman was disappointed to learn that there would be no fighting in California. That's too bad after coming so far, he said. And stories of the heroics of West Point classmates and Winfield Scott's brilliant campaign didn't ease his frustration. Quote, These brilliant scenes nearly kill us who are so far off and deprived of such precious pieces of military glory. End quote. And to Ellen, he wrote, quote, I have felt tempted to send my resignation to Washington. After having passed through a war without smelling gunpowder, I am so completely banished that I feel I am losing all hope. End quote. His worry was that the combat experience that he missed out on would put his peers permanently ahead of him in the chain of command. Promotions were in short supply, and they tended to go to the combat veterans. And uh, more viscerally, he was a soldier by trade, and he wanted the opportunity to test his mettle. So Sherman arrived in, in Yerba Buena, soon to be known as San Francisco, in January 1846. California, with a population of uh, only 25,000, had been Mexican territory uh, before briefly declaring itself the Bear Flag Republic prior to annexation by the U.S. Uh, The vast majority of the settlers from Mexico didn't care about the war and didn't really object to now living in U.S. territory. There was uh, a little guerrilla activity, but for the most part, California quietly came under the control of the American military. Sherman settled into his new post as quartermaster, and his most significant enemy was boredom. Uh, But then, a little more than two years after his arrival, the excitement picked up. One morning, he was summoned to the office of Colonel Richard Mason, who was running the show for the Army in California now, uh, to examine a few rocks that had had been sent by a German immigrant Uh, named Johann Suter. Mason asked Sherman if he knew what the rocks were. 
Uh, Sherman examined them, hit one with the backside of an axe head uh, to test its malleability, and concluded, as had Colonel Mason, that they were looking at gold, and a lot of it. Souter, uh, were the men working for him, had been building a sawmill on the Sacramento River when they made the discovery, and they shared the news with the local governing authority, informing Colonel Mason that there was a lot more still in the ground. Mason and Sherman decided to go see for themselves. News traveled a lot slower in 1849, but when gold was involved, things had a way of speeding up. By the time the two officers arrived at Souter's Mill, there were already something like 4,000 men panning for gold, producing upwards of $50,000 per day worth of the precious metal. Obviously, this was big. And Sherman had the honor of, of writing the official letter to Washington announcing the find. And just in case there were any doubts, uh, he sent several pounds, that's right, pounds of gold as a sample. By the end of the year, California's population had grown by 400% as a result of the gold rush of 1849. And by the end of the following year, what had been a huge empty territory was admitted into the Union as part of the uh, Compromise of 1850. And for a few years anyway, the gold kept pouring out of it. The sober-minded Sherman resisted the temptation to try to get rich as a prospector, but the same could not be said for many of the other soldiers, especially the enlisted men. Sherman, then, was assigned to bring in the deserters, and he managed to catch all but one of the 28 who initially went AWOL. But uh, more and more kept leaving, and manpower, which was already in short supply uh, for the army charged with maintaining order in the uh, massive California territory, uh, became even shorter. The temptation to go AWOL uh, for the chance at a lottery ticket was was worsened by the soldiers' meager pay. Only the highest-ranking officers drew a good salary, and the gold rush made things worse by driving up prices in California. It, it w- was basic supply and demand. The tens of thousands of prospectors dramatically increased the demand for uh, for just about everything. Uh, Sherman's response was to take up side work as a surveyor, and the equivalent of a realtor, making much more than his army pay. After about four years into his time in California, uh, Sherman was bored, uh, fed up with the stagnation of his current position, and ready to return to civilian life. He wrote fiancé Ellen, quote, I am determined to do something rash, rather than continue here in service much longer. I've had my share, and now want to look after my own interests, end quote. Just in time, though, General Persifer Smith, uh, who had taken over command in California by then, uh, did Sherman a solid by assigning him to transport dispatches to Washington and then take up a new post on the East Coast. So January 2nd, 1850, Sherman got out of California for the first time, and he ended up with a choice assignment working on Winfield Scott's staff uh, after being summoned to the White House to uh, uh, fill in President Zachary Taylor on the situation in California. Now, Thomas Ewing was serving in Taylor's cabinet, and Scott, uh, who also had uh, presidential aspirations, no doubt knew that Sherman's foster father, Ewing, uh, could be of help. Scott also seemed to view Sherman as a talented young officer worth his time, and Sherman's relationship with Scott would be, uh, would be a big boon to his, uh, his early military career. Sherman remembered General Scott, 
over dinner one evening in, in 1850, prophetically declare, quote, our country is on the eve of a terrible civil war, end quote. Winfield Scott was a Virginian, but he was also fiercely pro-Union. His illustrious career came to an um, anticlimactic end as a result of the war, but uh, not before Scott made his strategic mark on it. Sherman received an extended furlough uh, during the spring of 1850 and used the time to marry Ellen, bringing an end to their six-year engagement. Ellen was short with black hair and lots of energy, which she, she needed to keep up with her new husband. She was also well-educated, intelligent, socially adept, and strong-willed, all of which made her an asset to Kump. Together, they would have eight kids and what appears to have been a, a successful loving marriage, strained only by uh, Sherman's resistance to her strident Catholicism and the extended periods apart owing to his chosen profession. They had a big wedding in Washington, and with Secretary of the Interior Ewing giving away the bride, the, the guest list included uh, quite a few notable figures, including Daniel Webster, Henry Clay, and President Taylor. Taylor's life and presidency would come to uh, an unfortunate end only two months later, when he died from what was probably either food poisoning or cholera. Taylor's successor, Millard Fillmore, replaced Ewing, uh, who was then appointed to Ohio's vacant Senate seat. In the fall of 1850, Sherman was promoted to captain and sent to St. Louis, serving under the command of Colonel Braxton Bragg. Sherman really took to St. Louis and would live in that city several times. Uh, he made numerous personal and professional connections uh, that would last for the rest of his life. Ellen joined him in Missouri in the spring of 1851, and their first child, a daughter they named Maria, uh, was born shortly thereafter. Even with the pay increase from the promotion to captain and the extra money that he earned from managing properties owned in St. Louis by Thomas Ewing, the Shermans were low on cash. And it wasn't so much a lack of income or that Sherman was uh, bad with money. He wasn't. Uh, but that Ellen had grown up wealthy and was accustomed to that lifestyle. So Sherman moved uh, the family into the city's best hotel to suit her, but that was an expensive place to live. A, a recurring theme that you'll see throughout Sherman's early adulthood is his determination to provide Ellen with as uh, upscale of a lifestyle as she had enjoyed growing up. It was both a means of satisfying his wife and proving uh, his worth to his, his father-in-law. And she moved back to Ohio several times early in their marriage when she found the standard of living uh, wherever Sherman uh, was stationed unsatisfactory. Uh, Ellen Sherman was, was an uh, unquestionably loyal wife, an advocate and supporter of her husband, but she was also somewhat spoiled. So when she got pregnant again that May, she headed back to Lancaster, Ohio, to live with her parents, prompting Sherman to remark, quote, I have good reason to be jealous of a place that virtually robs me of my family, end quote. Soon after, Sherman received uh, another transfer to a position that, that he really dove into. Corruption was rampant with the Army's commissary in New Orleans, and Sherman got the job of rooting it out. And he succeeded. He renegotiated all of the unfavorable contracts, uh, or overly favorable, uh, depending on your viewpoint, and he got rid of loads of unnecessary wasteful spending, 
uh, one of the officers stationed there in New Orleans concluded that, quote, if Sherman does not find the error of three cents necessary to balance his accounts, he will resign his commission and commit suicide, end quote. Now, Sherman enjoyed life in the South and even convinced Ellen to move to New Orleans with their two girls. But in December 1852, he received an offer that he couldn't refuse when a connection from St. Louis offered him a job managing the San Francisco Bank of the Lucas, Turner, and Company uh, for double his army pay and a slice of the bank's profits. The only downside was that he would have to leave the army. So he hedged his bets, requesting and receiving a six-month furlough uh, rather than resigning so that he could test the waters. Ultimately, Sherman decided to make the job permanent, and Ellen and the kids joined him in California. Uh, At that point, San Francisco was still booming from the gold rush, and there was a lot of demand for financing from uh, prospectors. Uh, Sherman said of the town, quote, It wears the appearance of a mushroom of rapid growth and rapid decay, end quote. The problem was that neither Sherman nor Ellen, well, really liked San Francisco. The town was dirty, tense, and crime-ridden. Ellen, in particular, hated it, uh, eventually saying that she uh, she wanted the bank to fail so that they could leave, and writing, quote, For all the gold in California, I would rather live near my home poor than be a millionaire away from it, end quote. She nearly got her wish uh, when an economic downturn resulted in a uh, February 1855 bank run. Sherman, though, had loaned money more conservatively than most of the other local banks, and so Lucas Turner and company pulled through, earning Sherman a reputation as a smart banker. But she went back to Ohio in May anyway. But, But two of the kids, Willie and Lizzie, stayed behind to keep their father company. Ultimately, the branch would survive until the Panic of 1857, when so many loans defaulted that that even relatively conservative lending uh, couldn't save it. Not only were prospectors defaulting left and right, but the city of San Francisco defaulted on its municipal bonds. Uh, the, The city's default was a disaster for Sherman because... He had been entrusted with investment funds from several of his, uh, his old West Point buddies, the bulk of which he had put into the bonds, viewing government bonds as, as a safe investment, which they normally are. Sherman vowed to repay the lost investment, which he eventually did at great personal cost. His investors, Braxton Bragg, Don Carlos Buell, William Hardy, and George Thomas, attested to Sherman's scrupulousness for the rest of their lives. The branch's closure led to a transfer to another branch of the same bank in New York. But we need to hit on one more thing before we leave California. We haven't yet touched on an idiosyncrasy of William Tecumseh Sherman that is absolutely vital to fully understanding the man. He had a passionate, searing hatred of the press. The flames roared the highest during the Civil War when reporters alternately speculated that he was insane and a traitor to the Union. But the embers uh, were probably first lit in 1856. San Francisco was plagued with the dual burdens of rampant crime and corrupt police, which in turn led to an outbreak of vigilante justice. Uh, To put the extent of the problem in perspective, 
a member of the city's board of governors, murdered one of his political opponents in broad daylight, and then hid out with the sheriff's department for protection. The citizens were fed up. Over 2,000 armed men surrounded the jail, took custody of the murderous politician, and lynched him. And we're using lynch here literally. The mayor and governor decided that they needed to restore order and reassert the civil authorities' monopoly on uh, violence. And to figure out just how to go about doing so, they consulted with leading citizen and former Army officer William Tecumseh Sherman. Together, they came up with a plan to call for uh, militia volunteers, with Sherman appointed as Major General of the California Militia, to lead them in reigning in the vigilantes and stamping out crime. General John Wool, who was now running the show for the U.S. Army in California, agreed, or did not agree, depending on who you believe. Uh, to equip the militia with rifles for the endeavor. So, to make a long story short, the governor puts out the call for volunteers, hardly anyone responds, and General Wool doesn't come through with the weapons. Newly minted Major General Sherman is left holding his, uh, left holding the bag. And the press went after him savagely. They poured on their abuse of me, Sherman recalled. He was derided as a mighty man of war taken from the desk of a counting house and accused of giving bribes to get the appointment, motivated by his desire to protect dirty politicians because he was profiting from their corruption. Sherman resigned after only a few days, humiliated. And for the rest of his life, Sherman despised what we might now call the media, but he called the press as a cruel unprincipled collection of jackals, forever eager to ruin lives if they saw any profit in it. Now, Sherman might have had a successful career as a banker, but the Panic of 1857 hit the financial industry hard. So after helping Lucas Turner and company close a couple more branches, he found himself unemployed. Uh, He wasn't in in nearly as bad a situation as Ulysses Grant. Uh, Sherman's father-in-law was Uh, as, after all, a very wealthy man. Uh, So there was no danger of the family uh, becoming homeless or not having enough to eat. But it it was uh, very much an an injury to his pride. He wanted to provide for his family himself, but he was forced to ask Thomas Ewing for help. Not a handout, a job. Sherman wanted to avoid living in Ewing's shadow in Lancaster, and uh, managing the salt business in, in West Virginia just wasn't appealing either. So they decided he would move to Leavenworth, Kansas for a job in a law firm uh, run by Thomas Ewing's son, uh, who was Sherman's brother-in-law or foster brother, uh, however you want to look at it. Sherman had never studied law, but the idea was that between his banking experience and army connections at nearby Fort Leavenworth, he would contribute to the firm as he learned the trade. And in 1858, Sherman started and ended his brief career as a lawyer, after being admitted to the Kansas bar on general knowledge. So no test or formal apprenticeship required. Imagine that, right? In 2019, lawyers have to graduate from college, and then three years of law school, and then, after spending a summer studying, uh, pass a bar exam, uh, which usually takes a couple days. In 1858, in Kansas anyway, uh, be a reasonably smart guy with some life experience, and you're in. Uh, To be fair, though, that's not how most 19th century lawyers did it. 
Uh, like Lincoln, the majority would spend a while uh, apprenticing with an experienced attorney before beginning practice. But as far as, as formal requirements, uh, uh, some states only required a certification of good moral character, uh, though there, there were some uh, oral examinations in a few. So after Sherman's first court appearance, he remarked uh, of the better prepared opposing attorney, quote, that little bow-legged gnat beat me slick and clean and came near taking my boots, end quote. So that probably didn't go all that well. Uh, then in his second attempt, the other attorney questioned Sherman's moral integrity, and Sherman responded by threatening to pummel him. Uh, also not an ideal result. And that was it. No more lawyering for William Tecumseh Sherman. Instead, he shifted his focus to managing some of the Ewing's local ventures, and he was also hired to oversee a road construction project for Fort Leavenworth, and uh, commissioned by his brother John, now a congressman, to prepare a report on the feasibility of a transcontinental railroad. Uh, the report was, was widely circulated in, in D.C. and um, sparked a lot of interest. Nothing came of it uh, at that time, but... Sherman was fully convinced that the railroad was not only possible, it was essential to the nation's continued expansion and development. And Sherman would ultimately play a leading role in making it happen after the war. Interacting with fellow soldiers at Fort Leavenworth reminded Sherman of how much he preferred army life to the life of a, a banker or a lawyer. Quote, it makes me regret my being out of the service thus to meet my old comrades in the open field, just where I most like to be, end quote. And so with his eyes on a return to uniform, he reached out to War Department bigwig and West Point buddy Don Carlos Buell for help in finding a military job. And uh, Buell came through big time. He recommended Sherman for a job as superintendent of the planned Louisiana Military Academy. Uh, another West Pointer, Louisianan Braxton Bragg, uh, served as a personal reference, and Sherman got the gig. Uh, the job came with good pay, and Sherman liked the South, and it got him back into military life. Almost too good to be true, right? The fact that William Tecumseh Sherman, uh, cursed by generations of Southerners, headed a military academy in the Deep South until two months before Fort Sumter, is one of the Civil War's great ironies. But in 1859, Sherman was thrilled for the opportunity, and he threw himself into position and, and really uh, did a good job overseeing everything from uh, construction of buildings to development of curriculum. After the school's unfortunately timed opening in January 1860, Sherman alternately worked as teacher and administrator emphasizing strict military discipline with both students and faculty. There were a few complaints of over-harshness, but for the most part, he got rave reviews. According to one trustee, quote, If you had hunted the whole army from one end to the other, you could not have found a man in it more admirably suited for the position in every respect than Sherman, end quote. Sherman loved Louisiana and got along great with the locals. So he decided to make the move permanent. He would build a house, move Ellen and the kids, and have his children grow up as Louisianans. Thomas Moore, the governor of Louisiana, held a banquet in honor of the school's successful opening with Sherman as guest of honor. 
The other partygoers lavished praise on him for how well he had organized the founding of the school. But there was something of an elephant in the room. The guest of honor was the brother of Congressman John Sherman, a vocal abolitionist. So naturally, the Louisiana elites were curious about the new superintendent's views on slavery. Sherman set them at ease. The current population of Southerners had inherited slavery, he reasoned, and it was too embedded in the economic system for abolition to make sense. Even if it hadn't been a good idea to begin with, the South was in too deep. Uh, Basically, Thomas Jefferson's tiger-by-the-tail metaphor. Sherman suggested that the state legislatures should enact legislation aimed at improving slaves' living conditions and treatment, and keeping families together. Allow education for the most talented. The initiatives would be good PR, and they might help relieve some of the sectional tension. And uh, the audience uh, largely agreed with his points. It, It was plain to the Louisiana elites that they had found the right man to turn the new school into a first-rate military academy. So they significantly increased Sherman's salary and budget and even agreed to build the new house, the one that he had been planning, for him. It was an ideal situation for Sherman, a job he loved in a location he wanted to make home. He was welcomed right into and appreciated by Louisiana high society. Had the Civil War never occurred, General Sherman may have instead spent most of the rest of his life as a Louisianan, and in all likelihood would now be remembered as the founder of Louisiana State University. But as much as Sherman tried to ignore politics, it was becoming increasingly obvious during 1860 that sectional tensions were coming to a head, with secession a likely outcome. And consequently, Sherman's wife, father-in-law, and brother all made known their disapproval of his current employment. He was training future military officers in the Deep South at a time when more and more people talked openly about a potential war. It wasn't a good look, uh, at least to his family back north. Of course, Sherman wasn't oblivious to the sectional tensions. He he just wasn't uh, emotionally involved. Uh, He wasn't that interested in politics, but, but he was fairly sympathetic to the Southern complaints about pushy Yankees and radical abolitionists. He he wasn't a fan of the Republican Party either. But there was one issue that Sherman was passionate about, secession. Sherman was ferociously, unreservedly pro-Union. So slavery, not a big deal, uh, except to the extent that it was uh, encouraging a national divorce. Or as Sherman summed it up in a letter to uh, Thomas Ewing, quote, I would not, if I could, abolish or modify slavery. Still, of course, I wish it had never existed, for it does make mischief. The true position for every gentleman, north and south, is to frown down even a mention of disunion, end quote. And that, in a nutshell, explains how Lincoln was able to recruit hundreds of thousands of volunteers in 1861 from a northern population that was mostly ambivalent to slavery. Had Honest Abe put out a call for young men to fight a war to end slavery, he probably wouldn't have received an enthusiastic response. But preserving the Union, that was a cause that politically indifferent soldiers like William Tecumseh Sherman and even conservative critics of abolitionism like George McClellan could get behind. 
Unsurprisingly, in the 1860 election, Sherman voted for John Bell, the candidate of the Constitutional Union Party, which was basically a short-lived, one-issue party built around reconciliation and compromise to avoid secession. But as we all know, Bell didn't draw a lot of support, and Republican Abraham Lincoln won the election. And after the South's emotional reaction, uh, Sherman could see the writing on the wall. So he reluctantly told Ellen to stay in Ohio. The South was getting too unstable. And Sherman was transparent uh, about where his sympathies lie uh, with his friends in the South. He told Louisiana Governor Thomas Moore, quote, If Louisiana withdraws from the Federal Union, I prefer to maintain my allegiance to the Constitution as long as a fragment of it survives. On no earthly account will I do any act or think any thought hostile or in defiance to the old government of the United States, end quote. Sherman was still in command at the Academy by February 1861, but that wasn't going to last long. First, he refused to accept custody of the federal arsenal from Baton Rouge. Uh, Seizing United States property was uh, beyond unacceptable to Sherman. And then Louisiana officially seceded, joining South Carolina, Mississippi, Florida, Alabama, Georgia, and Texas in the first wave of secession. And at that point, Sherman reluctantly resigned and left the academy. But only after first speaking with each and every cadet personally and bidding adieu to Governor Moore and the school's trustees. The parting was on good terms, but Sherman didn't pull any punches about telling all the Southerners what a mistake they were making. With a laugh, he wished the governor farewell and told him that the next time they met, Sherman was going to hang him. Sherman's most famous parting words, though, were spoken to his good friend David Boyd, a fellow teacher who would take over the Louisiana Military Academy when it became Louisiana State University after the war. As Boyd later remembered the conversation, and I'm going to quote at length here because uh, uh, this is good stuff, Uh, Sherman prophetically told Boyd, while preparing to depart, quote, You people of the South don't know what you are doing. You think you can tear to pieces this great union without war, but I tell you there will be bloodshed and plenty of it. It is all folly, madness, a crime against civilization. You people speak so lightly of war, you don't know what you're talking about. War is a terrible thing. You mistake, too, the people of the North. They are a peaceable people, but an earnest people, and they will fight, too. They are not going to let this country be destroyed without a mighty effort to save it. Besides, where are your men and appliances of war to contend against them? The North can make a steam engine, locomotive, or railway car. Hardly a yard of cloth or pair of shoes can you make. You are rushing into war with one of the most powerful, ingeniously mechanical, and determined people on Earth. Right at your doors. You are bound to fail. Only in your spirit and determination are you prepared for war. In all else, you are totally unprepared with a bad cause to start with. At first, you will make headway, but as your limited resources begin to fail, shut out from markets of Europe, as you will be, your cause will begin to wane. If your people will but stop and think, they must see in the end that you will surely fail. End quote. Prophetic words. More than uh, just about anyone else, William Tecumseh Sherman did not want war. He liked the South. He had tons of friends, 
who would become Confederates. His initial instinct was to try to stay out of it. So he went back to Lancaster, unemployed. Uh, But that wasn't going to last. All of a sudden, there was an overwhelming demand for experienced military officers. And Sherman's family pressured him to get back into uniform. Uh, Really, though, it wasn't that hard of a sell. He had loved Army life since West Point, and if there was ever going to be an opportunity to use his training, well, this was it. And having missed out on action in Mexico, that was an appealing prospect. Thomas Ewing and brother John Sherman, serving uh, as senator from Ohio by that point, went to work lobbying for a high command. John arranged for a meeting with President Lincoln in March 1861. Sherman, of course, had fresh information about the zeitgeist in the South, and he told the president the South was preparing for war. The North needed to do so as well, and in a hurry. A long, ugly war was brewing, so the administration needed to start mobilizing. Lincoln, though, thought Mr. Sherman was being overly dramatic. He dismissed Sherman with a wave of the hand, saying, Oh, well, I guess we'll manage to keep house. Now, as astute as Lincoln was, in March 1861, he was among the vast majority thinking that if war came, it would be short. And so when Sherman offered to get back in the saddle to aid in the preparation for war, Lincoln declined the offer. Quote, We shall not need many men like you. The affair will soon blow over. End quote. Predictably, the president's unconcerned attitude uh, frustrated the heck out of Sherman, and he aired that frustration to John. Quote, The North just don't care a damn. You politicians have got things in a hell of a fix, and you get them out as you best can. End quote. Sherman would later compare politics in Washington to two pelicans quarreling over a dead fish. It's a little ironic when you consider that uh, Sherman came from a family that was so well-connected politically, uh, which over the years he often benefited from. But he was intensely cynical about politicians. So so if you're making a list of things that Sherman doesn't like, uh, so far we've got the press and politics up at the very tip-top. And um, before long, we'll also be adding Henry Halleck, Edwin Stanton, the city of Columbia, South Carolina, and the most tragically, American Indians. So after getting a uh, a thanks but no thanks from Lincoln, Sherman decided to move back to one of his favorite places, St. Louis, to take a job as president of the St. Louis Fifth Street Railroad. Sherman thought he was getting away from politics, but pretty much uh, just as soon as he arrived, Missouri erupted into the secession crisis. The majority of the population, including the governor, were ready to declare for the Confederacy. And on the other side were the the politically powerful Blair family, uh, German immigrants in St. Louis, and the army garrison commanded by Nathaniel Lyon. In general, Sherman was more sympathetic to the southern side of things, but not on the one issue that mattered. As he put it, quote, On the question of secession, I am an ultra. I believe in coercion. End quote. After Fort Sumter, he received an offer for a uh, bureaucratic position with the War Department. Uh, Lincoln called for 75,000 volunteers and was going to need officers and administration to organize and lead them. Of the call for 75,000 men, Sherman said, uh, perhaps apocryphally, quote, why you might as well attempt to put out the flames of a burning house with a squirt gun. 
So Sherman turned down the War Department job, just as he turned down militia commands from Missouri Unionists and the Ohio governor, uh, who offered him the rank of Major General. He still thought that he could stay away from the fighting, but the fighting was not going to stay away from him. Shooting broke out between the Unionist militia occupying St. Louis and pro-Southern citizens, resulting in 21 dead, and Sherman was right there when it went down. Not as a participant, uh, he was almost collateral damage. By early May, Sherman could no longer resist. He wrote to Secretary of War Simon Cameron, once again offering his services to the Army. With John's help, he was soon commissioned as a colonel in the 13th Infantry. Several other Shermans and Ewings also received commissions early on, and a couple even made their way up to uh, ranks like Brigadier General by the end of the war. Uh, After Sherman established himself uh, later on in the war, Ellen would try to convince him to engage in some some uh, good old-fashioned nepotism to get his his brothers-in-law promoted. Uh, To his credit, though, Sherman refused. By June of 1861, William Tecumseh Sherman was back in uniform and back in Washington, and Ellen and the kids were back in Lancaster, Ohio. But she had some inspirational parting words. Do not go into battle as a heathen would, with no prayer for another world to which you may be hurried, end quote. Uh, Sherman no doubt smiled at his wife's uh, thoughtful advice, but uh, almost certainly did not heed it. On June 11th, he again met with Winfield Scott in Washington. And that's worth noting because Winfield Scott uh, was the top guy. So the fact that Sherman got a meeting with him at the beginning uh, shows that uh, he had some political backing uh, due to his father-in-law and brother's political sway. Grant wasn't getting meetings with Winfield Scott in 1861. He couldn't even get McClellan, uh, commander of Ohio Volunteers, to return his calls. Three years later, and Grant was running the show with Sherman as his right-hand man. Things change pretty fast during wartime. Uh, Competence becomes the utmost priority. Grant and Sherman, above all things, were competent. Sherman's stock, though, would would drop dramatically early on, before rising to an all-time high by the end of the war. The man that was running the U.S. Army in 1861, General Winfield Scott, was supremely competent, but his stock was unfortunately on the decline. It wasn't anything you could fault him for, though. Uh, the old war horse was, was just that, old, 75, and weighing in at over 300 pounds. In his prime, Winfield Scott was a big, imposing physical presence, uh, but now he was old, fat, and no longer able to take the field. But his mind was still sharp, sharp enough to put his stamp on the Union war effort in the form of the Anaconda Plan, a name uh, Scott did not originate and uh, was used uh, derisively early on. Listeners to this show are probably familiar with the Anaconda Plan. The uh, the idea, uh, simplified, was to control the southern coastline to cut off imports and exports, uh, take the Mississippi River to cut the Confederacy in half, and prevent each side from supporting the other and then squeeze by controlling the remaining navigable waterways and railroads uh, to bring Southern commerce to a grinding halt. Sherman was on board. He agreed that the Mississippi was the key to Union strategy, and he would play a significant part in capturing the mighty river. Uh, The problem with Winfield Scott's plan, uh, at least politically, was that it was going to take some time. 
Now, uh, the Virginian Scott had no delusions uh, about what the nation had in store. Uh, He'd been around, and he knew that if the Union wanted to win, they needed to commit for the long haul. It was going to be a grind. They needed to ramp up industrial production and get as many men into uniform as possible. But the politicians and the media were impatient. So they started angling to get the old man out of the way. As politicians tend to do, congressmen and senators with no experience in military service uh, appointed themselves the experts on the subject and decided that all that was necessary was a quick, glorious march on Richmond. Take the Capitol and the Confederacy would fall. Just like the uh, Continental Army quit the field when the Redcoats occupied New York, right? Uh, As a born Southerner, Scott's loyalty was suspect in the minds of the Radicals. Some even disgracefully went so far as to suggest that Scott secretly uh, had pro-Southern sympathies and wanted to take it easy on them rather than go for the kill. Sherman, though, knew that Scott was right. He knew from his time in New Orleans that Southerners were determined and spoiling for a fight. It wasn't going to be easy. And uh, marginalizing an asset like Winfield Scott, even in in his diminished state, was a mistake. Uh, Before Sherman had seen any action, uh, before the reality checks that were Manassas and Shiloh, and uh, before Stonewall Jackson and unconditional surrender Grant became household names, Sherman wrote, quote, I still think it is to be a long war, very long much longer than any politician thinks. That's going to just about do it for part one of our portrait of William Tecumseh Sherman. In part two, we're going to start getting into Sherman's role in the early war And perhaps more entertainingly, we'll take a deeper look into Sherman's uh, feuding with the press. Hopefully there won't be nearly as much delay in getting part two out as there was in getting part one. But either way, bear with me. I promise I will come through, so um, stick with me. If you have any questions or comments about the show, you can reach me at blueandgraypodcast at gmail.com. Remember, gray is spelled with an E. I received an email from a listener recently who pointed out that in my last episode on John Brown, I referred to Brown's raid in Missouri uh, as being a raid on Vernon City, when in fact it was a raid on Vernon County. So please forgive the error and accept this earnest correction. As always, thank you all for listening, and I hope to talk to you again soon. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.